If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our text today is going to be verses 1 and 2 in a message entitled, Pass It On, A Biblical Pattern for Discipleship. We are entering into this Passion Week, also known as Holy Week. It's the time from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday. Uh, It has historically been referred to as the Passion Week because of the passion with which Jesus went to the cross. He came on a mission from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost, to forgive sinners and to bring eternal life. And he was approaching the finality of the mission that he came to accomplish. On that Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem took place. It's a day of celebration, remembering Jesus entering into Jerusalem in culmination of his earthly ministry on his way to Golgotha. Uh, Jesus had a donkey brought to him by his disciples in fulfillment of prophecy. A large multitude gathered around him. They spread their cloaks on the road while others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them out on the road and waved them and shouted, Hosanna in the highest heaven. On Monday, Jesus cleared the temple. He found the courts full of corrupt money changers who were taking advantage of the people. Uh, He overturned the tables and cleared the temple, declaring God's house as a house of prayer for all nations and not a den of thieves. He was restoring it to the original purpose for which God had them constructed. Day three on Tuesday, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives and Mount of Olives lying east of the temple, uh, overlooking Jerusalem. There he gave the Olivet Discourse about the end of the age and the things that should be anticipated. Day four on Wednesday is what's referred to as Holy Wednesday or sometimes as Silent Wednesday because we're not told what Jesus did. It's assumed that he rested in Bethany in anticipation of the Passover celebration the next day. Day five was the Passover and the institution of the Last Supper, what's called commonly Maundy Thursday. Uh, Peter and John went on ahead to the upper room in Jerusalem. They were to make preparations there for the Passover feast. Jesus shared the meal with his disciples. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And then later that night, he was betrayed. He was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested in the events of his trials and his crucifixion were set into motion. Day six would be the crucifixion, the death and the burial of Jesus on Good Friday. The Bible says that about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus breathed his last and he died. His body was taken down and placed in a borrowed tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Day seven was Saturday in the tomb where Jesus' body lay in the tomb, carefully guarded by the Roman soldiers. And throughout the day on Saturday, the disciples undoubtedly were wondering and waiting. And then the main event of Resurrection Sunday took place on that day eight, the culmination of the Holy Week with the resurrection. And our faith, Christianity as a whole, hinges on the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus made multiple appearances after his resurrection and then leading up to his ascension back into heaven. And I believe when Jesus called the apostle Paul to serve him and to make him known, 
Paul committed himself to the centrality of the truth about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he knew that that was at the heart of what it is to make disciples, the the real focus of what his ministry and his life would be. And he wrote these letters that we've been going through to Timothy, who was serving in Ephesus. Paul was approaching the end of his ministry, so this was essentially a a farewell letter that we're now in in 2 Timothy. And he's writing to him about the importance of keeping the church within certain boundaries, making sure that the church was living on mission, encouraging Timothy in his faith so that he in turn would encourage the people that he was leading in the church to maintain their faith and to carry out the mission that God had given to them. Now, I believe that making disciples is the key to faithfulness in God's kingdom. And we know that and we believe it and we hold to it because Jesus taught and modeled discipleship. And he commands his church to do the same. I'm going to give you a definition of what I believe a Christian disciple is. And then I want to build on this in the remainder of the message today. A Christian disciple is a person who knows Jesus, is growing to be more like Jesus, and is on mission to make other disciples of Jesus. Let me repeat that again for emphasis. A Christian disciple is a person who knows Jesus, is growing to be more like Jesus, and is on mission to make other disciples of Jesus. And that's what's in view in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. And I begin reading in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God chose to use followers of Jesus, people like us, to carry out his message in the world, the message of salvation, so that people would come to a saving grace of, uh, of, in salvation in Jesus and then live out their lives as disciples. And Jesus gave us what we refer to as the Great Commission. It was his last words before he ascended back into heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I think there's a contrast of what we see today in the way many churches are structured and the way they function compared to what Christian discipleship is all about. Let me explain. I believe that there is very much an emphasis on consumer Christianity in many churches versus the biblical model of making disciples. Churches who promote consumer Christianity will focus on customizing choices in order to satisfy the desires, the styles, the tastes, and the preferences of the people. The people think about their faith as something to be consumed uh, rather than something to be lived. Making disciples focuses on something altogether different because it focuses primarily on Jesus. And when we focus on Jesus, we will surrender our desires, our styles, our tastes, and our preferences to Jesus and to his word. And we are called as disciples of Jesus to pass it on. But how are we to pass it on? How are we to share the good news about Jesus? How are we to follow a pattern of biblical discipleship? That's what I want to share with you in the time that we have remaining. First of all, 
You need to be a disciple. He says here in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The gospel is repeatedly emphasized in Paul's letters to Timothy. Timothy is reminded of his own conversion and of how he had come to faith in Jesus through the faithful witness that had been shared with him. He was exhorted not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He was reminded how Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He was instructed to guard the good deposit, which is the gospel. And then Timothy was reminded about his own ordination when they had laid hands on him and they had set him apart for a specific purpose to serve in the kingdom of God. And then now Paul is addressing him with a direct application. So he's given him this broad sweep of a reminder of what it's all about, how he had become a part of it, how the church was to be instructed, the enemies that were going to come against the church. And now he says to him, therefore, my son. Therefore links back to the verses of the exhortations and the examples of endurance in the importance of not falling away. And when he says, my son, that's a term of endearment. He reminds him of his love for him and he speaks gently to him while at the same time he gives him a command. So Paul tells him to be strong or to be empowered, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is interesting here because it's an imperative, meaning that it is a command. But this imperative that is a command is also passive. It is a command to do something, but even more so, it is a command to receive something. And to be a disciple, you need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus with clarity on your standing in Christ. So think about it this way. Discipleship is anchored in understanding and applying the grace of God in your life every single day. It is strength displayed on the outside that comes from strength on the inside. Ephesians 6 and verse 10 says, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. So we're being strengthened in grace that is described in the Bible as uh, a superabundant grace. That's the idea. It's a grace that comes to us as a gift. And what God does for us is he freely gives us this grace in Christ Jesus, not based on anything that we've done, not based on anything that we bring to the table, not based on anything that we could do in the future. It is all of grace and it is by the blood of Jesus. And this is the heart of how we can become disciples to begin with is we turn from our sins and we turn to the Savior and the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives. Think about Paul when he was saved on the road to Damascus. He was doing his own thing. He was on his way to persecute more Christians and he ended up becoming a Christian. And maybe today you're here and we're talking about discipleship and you really had no intention of becoming a disciple today but now you're hearing this message and you're hearing about the importance of being a disciple and it could be the one thing that God is saying to you today is that you need to become a disciple that you need to repent and believe in Jesus and come and follow him because that's where it all begins that's how you're saved by grace but then that's how also you grow in grace. And at the heart of this is what it means to be a disciple. Now, everybody has an idea uh, about what a disciple is. 
uh, I googled the phrase, how to be a disciple, and was a little bit surprised at what I came up with, but here were just the first few things that came up. Eight traits of a mature disciple. Nine ways to become a disciple-making disciple. What is a disciple? Three characteristics that are key. Ten qualities of discipleship. Four basics of discipleship. Fifteen marks of a disciple of Jesus. Now, I'm sure all of these have good content, and I'm certain that the majority of them flow in the right direction here of what we're talking about today. But we need to have some clarity if we're going to say to you, and I'm going to say to you today, be a disciple. I want some clarity on what that means. And what I'm working from today is that a Christian disciple is a person who knows Jesus, is growing to be like Jesus, and is on mission to make other disciples of Jesus. This is the heart of it. And a Christian disciple who is strong in grace knows Jesus. Not only knows about Jesus, but knows Jesus personally through repentance and faith. You remember when Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 3, he said, This is eternal life that they, know, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I like to say that the Christian life in its essence is about life with God. And that's what a disciple is, a, a person who knows Jesus and who is living life with God. And if you think about your discipleship as being narrowed down to what you do when you come on Sunday morning like this, when you gather in some other study group or something, and that's the sum total of what you view being a, a disciple is about, you've missed the point. Being a disciple is about the entirety of your life. It's about your life with God. Now, I love this statement that J.I. Packer made in his book, Knowing God. He said, in the New Testament, grace means God's love in action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross to descend into hell so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and receive, be received into heaven. That's what it means to know God. And the way to know him is through time in worship, in the word, and in prayer. But then from there, you're going to want to grow in Jesus. A greater likeness of him. And the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He uses the language of the fact that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So now as disciples of Jesus, when we are following Jesus and our eyes are fixed on him, then we too bear the image of Jesus. And we're living out the reality of Romans 8 and verse 29 that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's an ongoing process of sanctification where God is working in our lives to grow us to be more like Jesus because we've already been reconciled to him. And now we are desiring to reflect his image to the world. And that happens practically when we surrender our lives to him. If you ask me what is the one key word of discipleship, what would it be? My answer would every single time be surrender. 
is surrender. We're surrendering ourselves to him. We're surrendering who we are and, and what we have and what we hope to be and the entirety of our lives. We are surrendering it to him. And then we are abiding in him, being filled with the spirit of God, and we are bearing fruit in our lives. You see, this is evidence of whether or not we have come to know him to begin with. Whether or not we are filled with his spirit and growing in the likeness of Jesus as we go along. And a Christian disciple who is strong in grace is going to be on mission to make disciples of other people for Jesus. And that's going to start with sharing the good news about Jesus and then helping people grow as they come to know him and encouraging them along the way. But you've got to be a disciple if that's going to be a reality. Secondly, how are we to pass it on and share the good news about Jesus and follow a biblical pattern for discipleship? We are to make disciples. Now look at verse 2 again. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to teach the same lessons that I taught you. I want you to pass on the same content that Jesus gave to me. And I want you to be faithful in doing it. And Paul had done so in the presence of many witnesses. This phrase literally means through many witnesses. So the idea is not that Timothy was taught by these witnesses so much as that these witnesses could affirm the truth that Paul taught. Why? They were all teaching the same thing. Did you know today that if you go to a Christian church anywhere in the world that believes the Bible, you can go to Eastern Europe, and today they're telling the same story. They're singing many of the same songs. If you go to South America today in a church that is following Jesus and is following the Word, they're going to be telling the same story, and they're going to be preaching the same messages. You can go to the darkest corners of the earth, and they're going to be teaching the same message if they've received it that we are. Why? Because it's the same truth. And it's in the presence of many witnesses. And Paul taught the same thing everywhere that he went. And the importance of other witnesses to Timothy's faith was also evident. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 says that Paul said, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So I was thinking about this as we celebrated our milestone last week and great time of celebration for our church about what God's done through the years and where he's brought us from and where he's brought us to and where potentially he's going to take us in the future. And I thought about this whole concept of the presence of many witnesses and what they've observed. And I thought about the people who gave of themselves and their resources and their time to serve in Vacation Bible School, that very first Vacation Bible School that we saw a picture of on the video. And now here we are, recipients of that. Think about the generations that have passed and the faithfulness of the people to bring us to where we are. And we want to continue that faithfulness on. And this verse is applicable on many levels. It applies certainly to teachers and pastors and leaders in the church and specific positions and roles that they have. 
It applies to individual Christians who have relationships with other Christians. It applies to missionaries who give of their lives among unreached and uh, unengaged and underserved peoples. But you know where it also applies? It applies to your family and your heart to make disciples in your home. Now, understand, every home is not a Christian home. And all the children and the teenagers that we're ministering to, they're not all blessed with Christian parents who understand what it means to be a disciple or to follow Jesus. But those of you who do, that's where your first responsibility is. And if you think that you're farming out discipleship to the church for your family, and it's our responsibility and not yours, you've missed the point. We want to come alongside of you and help you be a better disciple so that you can grow your family and disciple your family and so that that will be passed on generationally among you as well. And we want to be faithful in doing that. But to make disciples, you've got to have something to commit. He says, commit this to faithful men. And I think he's speaking of the pattern of sound teaching that it refers to in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. The pattern of sound teaching is established in the Bible. It's the unchanging word of God that's been taught by the church throughout the ages. And the word for sound is where we get our word hygiene from. It's a word that refers to clean or healthy practices. So if we apply it to truth, it means healthy, sound, free from defect or error. So the church has to have faithful proclaimers of sound teaching who are not drawn away by the patterns of the world or the passing fads. Friends, people are being discipled daily by social media, by the culture, by the people they're around. The question is not are people being discipled, but are they being discipled in the right things, in the truth? A.W. Tozer died 60 years ago, and here's what Tozer wrote in part. He said, in, in more than 60 years ago, increasing numbers of Christians are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. More than 60 years ago. Think about what he would say today if he were alive. This man who was very much prophetic in his tone. And we see today that the winds of false doctrine have the potential to blow people off of course. And remember, Paul says more than once, you got to fight the good fight. He said to Timothy, listen, you are engaged in a battle. You've got to fight the good fight. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. This is light and darkness. This is not... Uh, battle of the flesh. This is the principalities and the powers that rule this world that we are in. Now think about the words of Jude. In Jude 1 and verse 3, he said, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. So Paul says, fight the good fight. Jude says, contend for the faith. He says, listen, I wanted to write to you and I wanted to encourage you about the message and the practice and the results of the gospel. But I got to tell you, first of all, I got an appeal to make to you. 
you better stand up and contend for the faith. The word contend can mean to struggle or it can mean to fight. The two basic illustrations that we would apply it to would be an athletic contest where athletes would undergo great struggle to compete against one another in a very significant athletic competition. The other meaning of it would be combat, to fight. And I think that's what Jude was using. And when Paul says to Timothy, guard the good deposit, he's saying there's something at stake. This is not a fight about all types of secondary issues. This is not a fight about things that don't eternally matter. This is not a fight about your preferences or what your particular opinion is about something. This is a fight for truth, and this is a fight for the gospel because the gospel is at stake. And the gospel is the good news about Jesus. But broadly applied, it's the sum total of the faith. And Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, made it clear that we are to make disciples. That's the imperative. As we make disciples, as we're going, that means we're going to be seeing people come to faith in Jesus because they're being shared with about the good news. They're being baptized in obedience to Jesus. And then they're being taught to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And Jesus promised that he wouldn't leave us to ourselves. He would be with us the whole way. His presence would empower us to carry out this mission of making disciples. And then third, how are we to pass it on and share the good news about Jesus and follow a biblical pattern for discipleship? We are to multiply disciples. Now, I hope if you're tracking here that we are making a progression, not only through the passage, but we're making a progression through how God works in discipleship. And he says here in verse 2, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We want to see people who are discipled continue on and make disciples of others. And then we want to see those who have come to know Jesus and are being made disciples reach other people. So the goal is this continuous process of disciple making. Now, think about it this way. Scripture is clear that God is the one who adds to the church when people come to faith, right? When the gospel is shared, Jesus is proclaimed, Holy Spirit draws people, God's family grows, and he adds to his church. But what takes place from there is multiplication. And multiplication has an exponential effect because disciples are making disciples who make disciples. And that says to us that as Christians and as the church, we must take the long view. As we reach others who will reach others who will reach others, we are doing the hard work of discipleship. That means you've got to have people who are committed. You've got to have people who are in it for the long haul. You've got to have people who are thinking about this generationally, not just what's happening here today. We don't want our church or our ministry or our lives just to be a flash in the pan. And then it's over with. We stirred something up for a short amount of time and then that was it. We want our lives to make generational impact. And to see God work exponentially through that. And I believe with my whole heart that discipleship is the gauge in the church to know really what is happening spiritually. To know how healthy a church is. 
we get caught up in a lot of other metrics sometimes. Some people get hung up on numbers and all sorts of metrics that may not be ultimately important. They matter, but they're not ultimately what matters. We entrust those things to God. But here's a question I would ask if you wanted to know how healthy a church is, a church family. What are those people really like in their daily lives? Really, what is your worldview? How do you make decisions? How do you treat the lost people that you work with on Monday morning? How do you use the resources God's entrusted to you? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Or do you share it when God opens those doors of opportunity? What would it be like to be a child in your home? What would it be like to be your husband or to be your wife? What would it be like to be your parent? What are people really like? That's the measure of discipleship. Are they persevering in the faith? Are they following and becoming more like Jesus? Are they making disciples of others? That's what we want to be about as a church. And we are all works in progress. We are imperfect people following a perfect Savior. And God encourages us along the way to keep making progress. And sometimes it's a couple steps backwards and then three steps forward. But the Holy Spirit continues to come alongside of us and to encourage us. And we ought to be doing that with each other. Church ought to be the most encouraging place in the world. Why? Because we have a common hope in our Savior. We know how it's all going to turn out. But in the meantime, we want to be faithful to Him and bring other people along with us. And we want to see that exponential impact of discipleship. I, I read a story about Hayden Fry, who was a college football coach, some of you will remember, of the Iowa Hawkeyes. He died, actually, in 2019. But he was a head football coach at the highest level for 37 years including 20 seasons for Iowa where he won 143 games. His 1983 team went 9-3 and and they ultimately lost in the Gator Bowl. A fairly underwhelming conclusion. But the real story is in Hayden Fry's staff. His 1983 coaching staff has been called the greatest collection of coaching talent in the history of football. That group went on to win 722 games as head coaches, 32 bowl wins, 9 BCS bowl wins, 35 top 25 finishes, and 22 finishes in the top 10 with 15 conference titles. Now here's the beauty of that coaching staff. Some are well known, and you're going to recognize the names if you've been a sports fan any time at all. Some you probably have never heard of. But that's how God works in discipleship as well. Most of us are not going to be written on the pages of Christian history. We're going to do what we do. We're going to go to be with the Lord, and he's going to use our investment that follows. There will be some who will be, but it's God who ultimately determines that. Here's some of the names that were on his coaching staff. Carl Jackson, Don Patterson. Bill Dervich, Bob Stoops, 
Dan McCarney, Bill Brashear, Barry Alvarez, Bernie Wyatt, Bill Snyder, Dale Miller, and Kirk Ferentz. All on that one coaching staff. A man who won 140-something games had men on his staff who went on to win 722 games. I would say to you that what can happen in football for Hayden Fry can be true for us if we take making disciples seriously. So the question is, not only are we a disciple, or even are we making disciples, we have to do that for the third one, but are we multiplying disciples? What will the story be of our lives, starting with our families? Will we be the generation that the faith fizzles out because we didn't really take it that seriously in our homes? Or will we be the disciples of Jesus who pass it on, who see it passed on to others? You'll note here, and I'm coming toward a close, in total there are at least four generations of discipleship directly in this passage. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others. But you know what else is wrapped up in this one little passage? A thousand generations that we sang about today. That's what's wrapped up in this passage. A thousand generations. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. We are the recipients of that. And we're continuing to pass it on here and around the world. And God gets the glory for it. And I want to make a faithful contribution I want to give you this from Bill Hall in his book, The Complete Book of Discipleship, and then we're going to pray. He said, discipleship isn't a program or an event. It's a way of life. It's not for a limited time, but for our whole life. Discipleship isn't for beginners alone. It's for all believers for every day of their life. And discipleship isn't just one of the things the church does. It is what the church does. It's what we're to be about. Will we be found faithful in what God has called us to? Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know what your need is today spiritually. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not yet a disciple of His. I invite you to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus and His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And He will save your soul. You will be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. For those of you who call yourselves disciples of Jesus today, I want you to leave here today encouraged. Encouraged, first of all, that you know Jesus, and then that you have the power of the Spirit at work in you, that no matter where you are right now in your life with Him, you can keep moving forward. God will encourage you, He'll get the glory, and you'll get the blessing if you will abide in him and surrender your life to him. And then I wonder as a church, what measurements we're using. And I wonder about that question that I posed today. What kind of people are we really? What would it be like to live in our homes 
and to follow the example that we are giving of what it means to be a disciple. Would you just ask the Lord to help you to know the answer to that question? And adjustments, perhaps, that you need to make to move more in the direction he wants you to go? Father, we thank you today that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves because if that was the case, we would be without hope. We thank you that it's all because of Jesus. We give him the honor and the glory as we go into this Passion Week and focus in on the cross and the resurrection. I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself than ever before. I pray, Father, that you would empower us, that we would be faithful. And that, God, how we live our lives would be a testimony to others who would also want to follow Jesus. And that we would get the blessing and they too would be blessed because of it. And help us to have an exponential generational impact. Not to be satisfied with status quo, but to truly desire to see you work in extraordinary ways through us as ordinary people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.